Good morning once again. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. I'm really excited about this. I don't know. Um, you can see the screen up here. We're starting a brand new series this morning called The Good Life, Human Flourishing According to Jesus. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for maybe three years. No, uh, I don't know how many weeks yet because we haven't figured it out yet, to be honest with you. We're just going to go and see how it's going to go. And so, like I, as I said earlier, we, uh, we have a few patterns as a church. One of those patterns is, of course, that we go through books of the Bible or at least <clears throat> chunks of the Bible verse by verse. And so another pattern that comes out of that is that when we finish one series or book of the Bible, um, our tendency is, uh, well, we need to. We go and pray to the Holy Spirit and, and ask him to show us where to go next for the sake of us as a church. What, what do we need to hear next as the body of Christ here in Squamish that will help us in our current cultural moments? And so in doing that, I, I looked back over the past uh, several weeks, actually a couple of months, and, and I, I was seeing how the Holy Spirit uh, took us several weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe, through a five-week series in Romans 8. And the question that we wanted to answer during that series was this. If the Christian life is supposed to be the best life, and it is, why is it such a struggle for most of us? Why, why do we struggle with it? Well, uh, we learned from the Apostle Paul from his own confession, actually back in Romans chapter 7, that he struggles just like we do. Because we saw Paul's testimony, his, his own confession. The guy has been a, a, a church planter, a, a, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus for like 15, 18 years. And he at one point in chapter 7 essentially says this, I don't know what's wrong with me. I know the things that I should be doing, <clears throat> but I don't do them. And I know the things I should no longer be doing, but I still do them. And so that's, that's a great comfort, right? You've got the Apostle Paul, and he's saying, I have this struggle. And so I think we all learned through that series, we all indeed have that struggle. So what was the lesson? Well, the lesson was what Paul was trying to teach us in Romans chapter 8 is that we, despite the fact that we're in Christ, despite the fact that we are saved, despite the fact that we are completely forgiven, <clears throat> we still have this old, sinful, fleshly nature that's just dogging us. And so the whole point that we hopefully came out of that learning was it's about living according to the Spirit and listening to the Spirit. So following that theory, series, we thought, well, okay, look, that, that, that seemed to go well, and it's a good foundation. It's helping us get somewhere in our lives and our walk. But then we realized, okay, so that's good. We're going to try to live according to the Spirit, and then we're going to go out into this world, and we are going to experience who? The enemy. So, so we did a six-week series on spiritual warfare, where we learned close up and personal who our adversary really is. We took a close look, two weeks on the devil, right? And we learned that, first of all, number one, his, his nature boils down to one thing. He's a liar. He's the father of all lies. And, and we also learned that he is responsible for promulgating, I love that word, all of the dissension, all of the division, all of the lies in our world and in our culture. He's behind it. He's behind it. Because he is still given by the Lord Jesus Christ lordship over the world at this time and in our lives. So we also learned that his modus operandi is this. 
He, he, he speaks deceptive ideas into everyone in the world, including you and I, into our minds, into our hearts, into our heads. And, and, and these appeal, these deceptive ideas, to our disordered desires, the flesh, right? That old nature, they just appeal to it, right? They just went and dog us. It's like, yeah, that, that wouldn't be so bad if I just did that one more time or I thought that one more time. And then the weird thing that we learned about it was this. These are typically things that have become normalized in our sinful world and culture. And so for the struggle, for everyone for that matter, but the Christian is, well, everyone's doing it. And so it's a huge struggle. And of course, by the end of that series, we learned this. Our role, our responsibility, what we definitely need to do is resist him. And stand. Stand. In the word of God still a struggle. So that leads us today to what I feel the Holy Spirit has put on my heart uh, for us. I really do hope it's going to be helpful. I was setting someone earlier today that, and I told this to Janice, I think on Friday morning, I was like, I don't know. I think I need to rewrite this first sermon, right? Because there's so much today that we're going to look at that's really just, it's very foundational. So it's going to take a little bit of a time for us to get through some of this stuff. But in order for us to see what we're going to see through the whole Sermon on the Mount, I feel it's important. And so I hope you're going to see as we move forward in our walk in faith with Jesus, this will be helpful. And so the question I'm hoping to answer that we need to answer, I believe, during this series is this. How in a world where everyone is seeking the good life, everyone is seeking human flourishing, how do we as Christians live the good life that God has called us to? Do you know what that really looks like? Because I had to really think about that hard this week. I, okay, yeah, I don't sin. Okay, there's more to it, I think. Right? There is more to it. And thankfully, we have Jesus to show us. So like I said, this is going to be much of an introduction. It might get a little geeky-greeky with you this morning because we're going to have to look at some of the original language. But that's good, right? And I know you're up for it. And I, I hope you'll find it helpful and interesting. And so we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is really, it is one of the most profound passages in the Bible. We went through the Gospel of Matthew many, many years ago, uh, early on in my preaching career. And I got to admit, when I go back and look at it, I, I looked at some of my notes and I went, well, it was theologically accurate, <laughs> I think. But, boy, had a lot to learn because it's such a profound passage, right? Everybody knows that. And then there's the Beatitudes that we will begin with this morning. One verse in the Beatitudes. How profound. And so it's going to be interesting. So once you understood, I believe, specifically the Beatitudes, which we'll look at only briefly this morning, and then we'll really unpack next Sunday, they, they act as a, a kind of a codec, kind of like once we understand the, the Beatitudes, what Jesus is saying in that day and for what reasons he's saying it and how it applies to us today, it will help us understand the Sermon on the Mount more deeply. That is my hope anyway. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses with you this morning. We will only look at the first three. Um, but read with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, um, thank you, thank you so much that we have these words recorded. Thank you that from our Bibles, from the Scripture, and, and as a result of you, Holy Spirit, working in us, we know you. We know you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know you. Not just that you exist, not that you are facts, but we know you. And we know that you know us. And you loved us so much. And you continue to love us so much. And there's nothing that we can ever do to have you love us any less or any more. So, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these words. I pray that you would just bless the thoughts you've put on my mind and my heart to share today. I hope they will be helpful. And I pray that you will bless us in the weeks ahead as we look at this series together and the wonderful words of Jesus his great sermon on the mount. I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So I, I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, the good life, right? Amen? Amen. Right? It's the good life, right? And, 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 and the phrase, human flourishing. I know some people I, I've spoken to about it are like, well, okay, but we've heard it a little bit. I know, I know there's others like, I've seen t-shirts like, live in the dream, right? And it's a wonderful thought. It, it, it is great, and it's really wonderful if you can actually say that. Like every day, like wear a t-shirt, live in the dream, live in the good life. And so we know that it exists, but this thing called human flourishing, which we're going to dive into mostly in this series, out of the good life, has gained very significant prominence, I want to suggest to you, specifically in our socio-political current cultural moment. It is for most human beings, whether, whether conscious or unconscious, it is the goal that we all have. I mean, we all know this. We're, we're, we're born with, you know, the idea that this is, this is the only life I've, I've got. Uh, 99% of the people in the world who do not know Jesus, do not believe in God, that's, that's the, the, the foundation of their lives is that this is it, which is why we all know of certain sayings. I know I did it. That's the second time this morning. Um, you know, I know, I know. Whoever's counting, I'm trying. Uh, Carpe diem, seize the day, boys, right? This, this is it. Suck the marrow out of life. That, that's why we have these, these thinkings and so forth. And, of course, we also know that the, the, the good life, however that is defined, and I hope we will see it more, a little today, but more as we go through the series, um, above all else is we desire the good life, however it is defined, and that's a good 
question to define it, but for most of us from our earliest ages, we have seen the good life model. We've seen our own parents, maybe, or, or people we know striving after the good life. That's why I love the, the graphic that Lorraine did, or this, there's these young people running for this. It's a, it's a desert, I think, the scene, but there's a little, top, little mountaintop, right? And they're chasing the dream, right? And, and so it's natural that we would grow up and we would see that. And one of the best examples I have personally seen um, in my life uh, is that we, that we are all involved in that is the very largest department, I think, on Amazon at any bookstore is called self-help, right? Uh, it's the self-help department. Well, we go there and we buy books to, to do what? To, to improve ourselves so, so that we can do what? Live the good life. Get there eventually. We, we have these self-assessment tools, whether they're Myers-Briggs or one of my favorite strength finders. I think they're good. They're helpful. Or some people use the Enneagram. Okay, and, and why are we doing those things? Why do we look at those things? Well, we're trying to figure ourselves out why. So we can become happier, more blissful, and live the good life. I mean, why in the world would we even look at those things, consider those things, if that wasn't the case? Sometimes, and and I think most of you know this, and we'll probably see something about this in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to be wealthy to suffer from this problem, right? This problem of wanting more than enough, right? We, We can arrive at a certain point where we are truly, actually living the good life. Compared to 90% of people in the world... We are living the good life. But it just gets to the point where we're, we start looking around and we're going, yeah, but I don't have an electric vehicle. I, I don't have that wardrobe. I don't have those shoes for sure, right? Or that house or that spouse. Or, like it just, it, it can become never-ending where my life is a good life, but it would be really a good life if now I could just have that. So there's this, this contentment issue that we have to deal with when we're seeking this good life. And so again, how we define what the good life really would be is a good place to start. And, uh, and then I think as, as we result of asking that question, the subject of human flourishing becomes a part of the equation. And it's good. The, the, the concept behind human flourishing essentially is that it's about the collective good, Right? So we, we kind of move away from being selfish right, and materialistic for ourselves, but we start thinking about the good of, of all. And, and that's a good thing. And so I want to suggest to you that human flourishing has become the great modern moral and ethical mantra that encourages, with almost religious fervor, a movement that seeks to, to, to see the collective good of everyone. And that sounds great on the surface. It does. It really does. I have a device here that I think many of you have, and I'm just going to show you something here, but you all know what the screen looks like, right? So, so the, the fella who, and the company that originally developed this concept, um, back in the day when they started their company, they had a vision statement. Their vision statement was essentially this, to change the world. I'm going to suggest to you that they've been pretty successful here at changing the world. But that mantra, that, that desire came out as, it was part of a, a, really a corporate e- ethos. And I saw this in my life over the past 30, 40 years, where all of a sudden corporations were, were, were getting the idea that if we, if we you know, change our logo and our banners to all be green, 
then, oh, aren't we good corporate citizens? And so then it also becomes a mantra within corporate America and the world, quite frankly, that we must be seen to be companies and people who are looking out for the good of all, for human flourishing. And so in my lifetime, I've seen companies go from being just good product manufacturers and, yes, good marketers, to being social leaders in the marketplace. And so they're having a very dramatic and dramatic effect. So for the purposes of our study on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to get to a point, I hope, here. Let me synthesize all this down to where it would appear we are in our world and culture today. I want to suggest to you that there are basically two worldviews related to this. There, there are some adjustments to that, but there are basically two worldviews, two primary views on human flourishing. What many today do not realize actually is this. The very concept of human flourishing comes from where? The Bible. <laughs> it starts in Genesis 1. Go forth and multiply. Go forth and flourish. Subdue the earth. Don't pillage and plunder it. Take care of it. But go and flourish. The, the whole Bible, the whole, the whole call of God on this is to be people who flourish. So the very concept, which people today mostly don't understand or, or believe for that matter, uh, comes from the Bible, and, and specifically the teachings of Christ, as we will see in our series, I hope. And so, however, what's happened in the past three to 400 years, and most of you who've been to university or even to a few sermons of mine or any other Tim Kellerish, I'm not him, but that kind of a preacher, are, are going to know that our culture has developed a new, a new view of human flourishing. And it would be a secular version of human flourishing. And that secular version has completely rejected the biblical model. If that hasn't come home to you yet, I, I just want to give you the title of an article that was printed on Global News' website a few weeks ago that um, Kevin passed on to me, one of our elders here at the Rock Church. The title of the article said this, and it was, it was an article about a, a recent survey that had been done of Canadians across Canada. Canadians consider certain religions damaging to society. The article went on to basically say that Christianity is more harmful in the vast majority of Canadians' minds than it is good. Harmful in what way? Human flourishing. What you and I believe, the human flourishing that we believe comes from the Bible, of which I'm not sure all of us actually knows what that looks like, and that's why we want to do this, is now becoming perceived in our culture as more of a problem than a blessing. And so I, I, I feel like that should be of no surprise to us, especially in the last 30 to 40 years where we have seen our society's views on sex, on gender, and on marriage evolve to, to the point where, in the opinion of those outside of our faith, we and what we believe are what is responsible for harming others and preventing others to getting to and achieving their flourishing. So it's a reality. I, I want to stress that point. It's a reality. So as, as Christians, how do we respond? I want to encourage you today, we respond by listening to Jesus Christ and his word and, and how he models and what he tells us is human flourishing. 
and, and then we, we flourish. And we'd be that, as we're going to get to in the Sermon on the Mount, that salt and light in this world and show the people in this world what that human flourishing should really look like. So the two primary views, then again, on human flourishing would be the biblical model and the modern secular model that believes the most important factor in human flourishing is every individual's right to self-identify, to be their true self, and to eradicate any impediment to our or their achieving the good life that we individually choose for ourselves. And of course, this is borne out very well in the famous Declaration of Independence in the United States, which basically says what? It's about the individual pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Flourishing. So, our goal in this series then is to encourage you and I, both of us, all of us, to become more fully aware of the beauty, the beauty of the human flourishing model that God created us to live within and that Jesus teaches about right here in this text. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever thought of it that way before? (laughs) I'm hoping you will see it that way. So let's put the first couple of verses up on screen and we'll have a look at what is actually happening here on this day. I hope you will see this. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So before we dive into context, which we're going to sex, so just picture that we need to see here is that he's on the top of a mountain. There are crowds, plural, in the original language that speaks to a multitude, a large number of people in excess of a thousand. But his disciples come to his feet. So that's the picture. And so in context, we, we all know this text. And again, it's one of those that, that we could just breeze right past, right? Like, like last week, we saw he lifted his hands and he blessed them, right? And we can get on to the next part. And this is one of those where you can just read it and go, okay, keep going. I want to get to the Beatitudes. They're so wonderful. They are. But we, we can't do that. We, we need to see this morning the broad context because it's very important. So first, the context I want us to focus on is not the place so much in Matthew's gospel, at least not yet anyway, nor its context in the Bible as a whole either, at least not just yet. It's the historical, the literary, social, and philosophical context itself. So again, one of our, I think, culture's least attractive um, virtues, in my humble opinion, and I'm guilty of it too, is, quite frankly, our arrogance in this day that, you know, we're so much more enlightened than they were in that day, right? You know, I mean, we've got the internet, we've got Google, we've got Wikipedia. Like, yes, so yes, is it true that we have more information, we've got more data? Absolutely. Are we wiser? Please shake your head. No, but there's an arrogance in that, right? We look back in that day and we go, those, 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 those simple people like Jesus walking around in sandals and, you know, whatever. And, and we, we look back at that and we just go, oh, these are really wonderful, pithy words from Jesus. They're beautiful, whatever. Hold on a second is what I'm getting at. So I think that's the more norm for us today is to think that way. Yes, more information, etc. But look at the words. This is important. Jesus seeing the crowds. 
So again, let's put ourselves back there in time just a little bit. Jesus, it's, he's, you know, he's a few months, not even maybe a year into his ministry, and he's, there's thousands of people following him, and he's like, okay, I need to give them a word. This is the time. I see them. So we often assume, I think, that when he sees the crowds, they were essentially made up of simply Jewish people and his disciples. Well, that again, in context, would not be correct. There were many pagans and Gentiles following him. You go back to his birth narrative in Matthew, and magi from the east come to bring gifts to the king of the Jews, of which they're not. They're pagans, probably from, well, they are from the east, but probably Babylonian descendants from the times of Daniel. I'm sorry, but I have to do it. Um, And so there are Gentiles there. Remember the Roman centurion? He comes to Jesus and he goes, I have a servant. Could you just heal my servant? And he even applies to Jesus. I know that you could heal him from a distance. How would he know that? Well, either he knew that from personally following Jesus himself or because people in his home and household or others have been following Jesus and told him, this, this guy's a, he's a, yeah, he's Jewish, but he's a healer. <laughs> and he could heal your servant for you. So I want to make that point. There, there are a lot of people, and Jesus sees this crowd. That's really important. So here we have Jesus ascending to a mountaintop, which again, it's a poignant picture That reminds us of Moses ascending a mountaintop, right, to hear from God and receive the law of God. It's intentional to be seeing that, but here's the difference. Now we've got the Son of God going to the mountaintop to proclaim the truth. That's different. Significant. And so let's ask this question. As he begins to open his mouth, what exactly is he thinking? Some of you fear speaking in public, right? But, you know, it's good to have notes because then you can go, okay, well, if, if I'm a little afraid, I can just start reading what I wrote, right? And, but Jesus, of course, he had no notes. He had nothing. He, 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 he spoke from his heart, and he spoke as God. And so I want us to imagine a bit here. Matthew tells us that he ascended the mountain because he saw the crowd. And so this message that he wants to bring to them is really important because he saw them and he he sees their need. He knows they have a very, very distinct need. So another contextual point then is that when Jesus opens his mouth to speak, he's looking at the crowd and, and he is seeing a diverse crowd, a multicultural, diverse crowd, men, women, people from all nations, tongues, and tribes, at least more broader than we might have thought. Jews, Gentiles, whether Greek or Roman. Jesus also in those days, we know this, he generally spoke in Aramaic, but he also knew Hebrew, obviously. (laughs) But he also spoke Greek, and he knew Greek. Both the Aramaic and the Greek languages in those days were a little bit like the, 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 the position that English has in the world when it comes to certain things, like commerce and so forth, like flying an airplane, right? Um... 
it was a common language. Aramaic and Greek were both common that were used that, that not just Jewish people used, but, but everyone from every culture would be using. So if you were in Judea, you were in Jerusalem in that day, as a Jew, you had to know how to read Hebrew, and you would hear it in synagogue, but you would know Aramaic and you would know Greek. So that's also really important for us to understand here. In addition, Matthew, of course, you know this, wrote the gospel in Greek. And most of the New Testament is written in Greek as well. I don't know if you knew this, but when Jesus is on the cross and he says the words, Eloi, Eloi, Zabachthani, that's actually Aramaic. And so the, the, he's quoted as saying that. So that we, we see a, a, a distinction in languages here. So the point of all this is so that we can see and understand that Jesus knows his audience. He knows who he sees. He also knows their individual views of the good life and human flourishing. I'm suggesting to you. So again, we might think these are modern concepts, which I would also say is completely false. So so when you consider who Jesus is, I want to ask you a question. When you consider who Jesus is and how you've come to know him, would you consider Jesus a philosopher? Anybody? Yes? No? Maybe? I see a lot of, "Mm, I don't know, right? Well, uh, in his book, Jesus the Great Philosopher, (laughs) Rediscovering the Way to a Whole, Meaningful, and Listen, Flourishing Life, author and theologian Jonathan Pennington strongly suggests this. We need to recover the lost biblical image of Jesus as the one true philosopher who teaches us how to experience the fullest fullness of all humanity in the kingdom of God. Hold there for a second. There's more to the quote. Just think on those words. We need to rediscover the biblical image of Jesus as the one true philosopher who teaches us how to experience the fullness of our humanity in the kingdom of God. It cannot exist, does not exist, outside of the kingdom of God. That's where it exists. He goes on to say, Jesus teaches us what is good, what is right and beautiful, and offers answers to life's biggest questions. What it means to be human, how to be happy, how to order your emotions, and how we should conduct ourselves And he could go on to say, within our relationships with one another. And so now let's return to our text in verses 1 and 2. As Jesus looks out, he sees two prevailing worldviews right in front of him. And again, we're we're 2,000 years out, we think we're... No, those, those worldviews existed right then and there at that time. Jesus knows exactly what they believe about human flourishing. It's the reason, by the way, he came into this world was, yes, to to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could enter as children into the family of God and into the kingdom of God. But he also said this, I have come to give you life and life more pleasantly, no, abundantly uh, flourishing life is what he came to give us. So he also knows they're both wrong in their worldviews, in one key way, despite their religious determination and zeal. The two views are, are essentially these. Theologically speaking, you'll find these in commentaries if you want to read about it or books. Jonathan Pennington's book, great book, you'll find it there, are these. Second Temple Judaism and Greco-Roman moral and ethical reasoning. Alive and well today. Both. So, so what, was, what was wrong with both of them? What was the key thing that 
that Jesus had to speak into here, and he does, well, both, both of them were based on human effort. Right? The, the Jewish Second Temple um, mindset towards human flourishing in the good life was that it's very simple. God has given us his law, which they expanded to 642, <laughs> right? And, and their, their, their modus operandi was to teach all of their followers that in order to flourish, in order to have, live the good life, you need to keep the law. If you keep the law, God will bless you. If you mess up <laughs> and fail to keep the law, he will remove his blessings from you. Well, that was the teaching. Jesus knows that. He absolutely knows that. They didn't get it. It was wrong. But, but the same is true on the other side of the coin. Replace the, the one true God with a pantheon of gods. And, and the reasoning behind that they had is, if you live a moral and ethical life that we will, through human reasoning, figure out together, then you will be able to appease the gods and you'll be able to live the good life. On the other hand... If you're not moral and you're not ethical, according to our standards, you will not be blessed and live the good life. And so Jesus, he's speaking to a group of people. Listen, he's speaking to Jewish rabbis, religious leaders who really knew the Torah, really knew their Bibles, were good teachers, effective teachers. They got it wrong, but they preached it a certain way. But it's also in a time and a season two to 300 years after people like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and the list goes on of who? Philosophers. Jesus is not ignorant of this. He's fully aware of it. And what does he want at the end of the day? He wants both groups and you and I here today, to truly flourish. So knowing all this and seeing the crowds, Jesus opens his mouth to teach. He's sitting in the posture, not just of a rabbi in that day, but also of a wise sage or a philosopher. It's how they would sit in front of those who they were teaching. And then he says, we're finally getting there, blessed are the poor in spirit. For, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I wasn't there. None of us were there. But I'm pretty sure that took them all by surprise. What? Hold on. Blessed sounds good, because that's vertically coming down from God is what they would believe, the Jewish people would have believed. But what, poor, poor in spirit? Hello? Hello? We'll dive into that more deeply next week. This would have been confusing, and it was a very interesting opener, and I'm going to suggest to you it got their attention. You know how the Sermon on the Mount ends, right? It ends with them all saying, he spoke with such authority, not like any of our scribes. That word scribe doesn't just mean Jewish religious writers. It means scribes, (laughs) writers and teachers of the day. So it took them by surprise. So look, this, this is where we're going we're gonna, to gonna kind of conclude with this this morning. But this is something we need to unpack right now before we can go further in the Beatitudes. And that is that, of course, we have a bit of a problem with the Beatitudes if we're going to really go deep. And that is the use of the word blessed, right? Now, I don't know if most of you know this, but the main reason why the English translators of the King James Version Bible used blessed is because it's not a terrible translation of the word, 
but it was because they were very much attempting to write in a, in a, in a poetic-type way with a meter to their writing so that it would be what? Memorable and memorizable. Memorizable. Okay. Yeah, you get the point, right? And it, it, it is. It really, really is. But it's posed a problem for many translators since that day. I remember reading a review of the ESV translation when it first came out, and the translators were like, we really want to change that word. But they realized that it's going to get a lot of flack, right? Because people are like, what are you doing to the Bible? Why are you changing the, the, the words of the Bible? And then the, the other was the really a legit one, which is, okay, what is the best alternative? So I want to show you this morning what I, I believe, and I think others do believe as well. So translated as best has led to a problem. Blessed, pardon me, has translated to a, related to a problem that we all have probably had at some point in time. I don't know about you, but again, in my early life as a Christian, especially when I was a Catholic, but even as a Christian, when I would hear a sermon on this and, or I would read it, my, my understanding was if I wanted to be blessed by God, I needed to be poor in spirit. I needed to do something in order to receive. And, and if I don't do that, I will not receive. Now, I don't know anybody. Anybody ever felt that way about the teachings of that? Okay. That can be a problem. And so that every one of the blesseds that Jesus uses is a makarism. And in that day, again, in the culture of the philosophers, the Platos, the Socrates, all of those who wrote in Greek, when they were talking about the word we're going to get to, they would use makarios, not eulogos, because it, it, it had more of a horizontal view to it and understanding to it. And so the way it is generally translated in the Greek dictionaries is one of three ways. Happy, blissful, or guess what? Flourishing. Flourishing. Now, most translators don't want to go with happy. Why? Because of what it sounds like in our culture today. I just want to be happy. I just want to be content, right? And, and it's, it's not a bad word, but it does not communicate, again, what is going on here in this text. So the use of makarios is significant, and in that day, as I said, makarisms, as they were termed, were widespread throughout the ancient world within Judaism and outside as philosophical terms that, listen, I'm giving you a definition from a commentary, are declarations based on observation that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing and fidelity. Oh, Fidelity. So, there's one more word we need to look at before we retranslate verse 3 today. And it's the word for. Right? Because, again, the original translators, when they translated this in English, it was like the meter and the rhyme, blessed for. Blessed. If you read it, it, it just rolls better if you use that word. But it, again, can create that confusion that can create the idea that I'm, I'm blessed if I have done this, or I won't be blessed if I have not done this. And so I'm going to suggest to you today that a better word 
and I want to go with this throughout our series, and I hope you're going to be fine with it, but many commentators and theologians are, trust me, look it up for yourself. The word is because. The word is because. So, as we conclude this morning, let me provide a translation for the first beatitude that we will, along with all the others, unpack next Sunday. And that translation is this. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Okay, just, just think about it for a second. Does that not change the perspective a little bit? Maybe a lot. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Believer, Christian, here today, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe you're already in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is yours now and for eternity? Flourish. One of the character traits, attributes of a believer in Christ who is a member of the kingdom of God, the first one and the foundational one is they are poor in spirit. As we will learn next week, you and I, we don't will ourselves to be that way. We don't do anything to be that way. And so, yes, first and foremost, to, to be a member of the kingdom, to be a, a, a Christian who flourishes, you need to, I need to have been blessed by God, by his son. And then we are to go and to flourish in this world. For what? For our own gain? for the sake of this lost, dying world. Next week, we'll unpack this more. It's a cliffhanger. Pray with me, would you please?